You are listening to the Boss Level Podcast. So here we are. Uh, if you could just introduce yourself and give me a brief history of your work life so far. Hi, my name is Otto Hilska. I'm founder and CEO at Swarmia, and I've been building software for quite some uh, years. So I started writing code when I was 12, started my first software company as soon as it was legally possible when I turned 18. Then uh, from that, started a spin-off, kind of a team messenger product called Flowdoc, which was the first real startup where we started kind of building something global. So it was kind of similar to Slack just a couple of years earlier with a relatively inexperienced founding team. But we raised money from Silicon Valley, um, sold the company to Rally Software, and I spent a few years there. Then four years building a growth company called Smartly.io in the online advertising automation space. I was the VP of engineering and later chief product officer running the product development. And uh, I've done some angel investing on the side, but now I'm back to starting from zero with Swarmia, uh, which is helping software development organizations continuously improve based on data. You often hear the like the the term serial entrepreneur being thrown around, but I guess that definitely applies to you. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. It feels like a pretty good default to start a new company when you don't know what you what to do with your life. Let's talk about Flowdoc. Uh, so, okay, you already kind of briefly introduced it, that that it was a messaging platform, uh, kind of similar to Slack, but before Slack. But let's talk a little about like instead of talking about the product itself, how did you actually operate? the company and and the the product you already mentioned that it it was a fairly inexperienced team so can you talk a little about how the how the company functioned we started flowdoc while we were running this consulting shop and all of the founders were working on a consulting project where we had to spend 8 hours a day we're building software for someone else and it was great because that that's kind of where we got the inspiration for the product but at the same time, obviously, having to work on your startup during nights and weekends is, is not optimal. And just due to some cash constraints, uh, we hired some really junior uh, people kind of their, to their first software development jobs and had them building the product with us uh, while we were kind of doing the consulting on the side. So it, it, it was not optimal in any way. But yeah. luckily, we were quite good at identifying those great junior developers at the time. And we actually built a really strong team uh, almost accidentally. Um, and uh, we had a very uh, kind of, I would say, like product-led growth type of thinking, even though that wasn't really a thing at the time. But partly, I moved away to to be much more, more sales driven or kind of going to customers directly and talking to them and trying to understand their problems versus just building something and kind of iterating. But we it it did work to a degree because we we managed to get a bunch of great customers like um, we had Shopify, Zendesk, MongoDB, TED conferences, many, many other great companies there. So we kind of d- didn't have any idea of how to run any of that. But uh, we were really interested in what is the best way to run each part of the business. And we just kind of, in a way, from first principles, tried to figure out stuff on our own. And it led to some good things, even though it was most of the time it was quite slow and tedious because we had no idea what we were doing. 
I think I remember discussing with you back then at some point that I think you had this uh, round robin where where each member of the team uh, did customer service. Do I remember this correctly? Yeah, well, that just seemed like a logical thing because we couldn't afford having anyone doing customer support. And of course, that is famously now also what, for example, Smartly has been doing a lot, etc. So it's kind of a logical thing to do just one of the small things to make to build that customer empathy and and get your team closer to customers and and you mentioned the term product-led growth can we talk a little about that what, what do you mean with product-led growth when you think that you know your customers that's probably not true and it was true for us as well that yes we knew certain types of customers but we didn't really understand for example the enterprise customers very well because we were not an enterprise in, in a similar sense but it always felt as quite natural to build the product kind of with this community in mind. And we tr- just tried to build these different ways to understand them better, interact with them in multiple ways, kind of share updates on on kind of what we've been building, getting their feedback and product and so on, and kind of had this very like community-driven uh, approach. We didn't have any kind of sales for several years. So we kind of had to build everything so that uh, the customers are able to onboard themselves and so on. So we built a lot of these kind of materials, optimizing the onboarding experience, etc. So kind of tried to try to make it as self-service as possible. Now, currently, I don't think that aiming for 100% self-service is, is a good goal at all. But we definitely tried to just make it all automatic and and just try to try to scale uh, with as little business investment as possible and we always had to be really careful to make sure that we have enough money in the bank so it was kind of natural to be quite frugal and try to optimize it how do you feel about that now being frugal and being uh being conscious of your your spending uh in in the companies that you run now because i think that's you know a lot of people say that scarcity is is the root of innovation and that's that's where it happens so what's your thinking about that now it's definitely true it makes sense to be careful in how you spend money because there's also examples of companies where uh people get just way way too comfortable spending money on things that do not bring any value to the customers and do not help the help the company grow at the same time it's very easy to overdo that and i feel that at smartly we sometimes overdid that a little bit and especially when you scale it's easy to end up in a situation where people have a different idea of what that kind of smart use of money means i think right now when the valuations are high, so many companies are raising so much money and they feel the pressure from their investors to spend that money right away. And when you're scaling like that, when you don't have an idea of where are we going to put this money in and what results are we going to get out from that investment, then that's, that's a recipe for disaster. And I can see that even some of our competitors are now in that mode where they're investing up. In, in many areas, but not really getting anything in exchange. Let's talk a little about the the acquisition in 2013. How did how did that come about? Still talking about Flowdoc, by the way, not smartly yet. Back in 2013, um, when the opportunities presented to potentially get acquired by a by a bigger company, it felt it, it felt really kind of flattering and, and and great. Now I've later learned that. 
there's like all big companies have these conversations with startups and much of that is just kind of fishing for information and and so on then some of these conversations ended up being leading to to somewhere and for example with rally uh one one of the challenges that we had was that we had no idea about how to sell to the enterprise and we just didn't understand that type of customer at all and then Rally was a SaaS company that was soon ready to IPO, already selling to these uh, companies, already kind of serving the technical buyer. They really understood that and they were executing really well in that front. And we just fe- felt that this is a great match where we can actually learn something from these people and they can actually help us uh, get to these bigger customers. And that part turned out to be true. So we definitely closed some huge customers after the rally acquisition with their help because for the first time someone explained me like what do these security certifications mean and how how do these companies actually buy how you're going to get your champion from different part of the organization how you're going to drive that deal through so that was all very new to us and uh and rally was really helpful in in making that happen uh can you talk a little about the negotiation phase what was it like to negotiate the terms of the deal negotiating an exit is kind of similar to negotiating a funding round that it's it it has a heavy focus on the legal parts even though actually the focus should maybe be more on the alignment on the direction of the business and and everything else there's a lot of stuff to agree on in the negotiations luckily the key things like valuation they were kind of uh I mean, we were at that serious A stage. We had an offer to raise a funding round. Uh, we were had kind of had an idea of where that's going to be, and and that's where we landed. So that wasn't such a big part of it. But I was definitely surprised by the all the detail that's involved in kind of just finalizing the contracts. And as a result, I feel that we underinvested in talking about the future of the business and and uh, what's going to happen after the deal. Because what we realized very soon was that after the acquisition closed, for example, the budgeting season for Rally was just over. And as a result, we were technically not allowed to hire anyone anymore, even though we had all these <laughs> like growth ambitions and we would have hired people otherwise. But wow. uh, we basically heard that, okay, well, it's going to be a year from now until we're revising the budget. So tough luck. But that also sounds like uh, the way that you were thinking about the whole deal was that there is a continuation to it, that it's not something where you just sell it and and you you go off different in different directions. But you were actually, it sounds to me like you were really invested in actually growing Flowdoc within Rally. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, and we were in a pretty good position afterwards. So Flowdoc was one of Rally's top priorities. Rally was always focused on selling to the upper management. So they sold a tool that's kind of like Jira, but focusing more on the upper management use cases. And their problem was that they don't have that many developers using the product. And they wanted to build something that is widely adopted by uh, developers. And Flowduck fit that picture really well because Flowduck was blocked by developers and we got got that audience. So it, it, it was a good strategic fit for, for Rally. When you look at the acquisition from the viewpoint of company culture, you 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 must have had like a fairly strong culture within Flowdog, and then you move to a much larger company with a U.S. culture, very very different culture in in terms of the the country is different, the the organizational culture is different. So, what was that like? There's always some kind of a 
culture mismatch when you just combine different companies. I think part of it was healthy. So for example, we didn't have a much of kind of a sales culture in FlowDoc. It was always about kind of, we just get these leads, we just convert them at a certain percentage and we just grow at a certain percentage, but we didn't have these kind of heroic efforts for going after some really big customers and, and kind of really focusing on them and so on. And I learned a lot from Rally about, about that. At the same time, kind of downside of that sales culture is that when you apply that in product development, you end up always just chasing the quarterly goals and you always throw away your plans and just people to doing something else that one big customer wants and, and so on. Also, the Flutter team felt kind of quite proud of what we've been building. And we could see that, for example, in many areas of the product development, we were doing extremely well compared to, to many of the other teams. And so we maybe felt less of a pressure to really properly integrate with the rest of the rally on the organization. And that was maybe a part of the problem that we should have recognized that we really are a part of this. And for example, I was oftentimes the link between the Helsinki team and the rally team, which was headquartered in Boulder, Colorado. And so that left out some kind of connection building that would have been really useful for, for the rest of the Floydock team as well. This episode is sponsored by Swan Lake Strategy. Swan Lake Strategy helps companies turn uncertain futures into new business opportunities and future-proof strategies. We all operate in a hyper-connected world that is constantly evolving and changing direction. Customer preferences shift, new competitors emerge, the world keeps getting more connected, and we need to fight global warming. Where should you place your bets when the game keeps changing? Swan Lake combines a unique set of skills and expertise. They create unique solutions and game-changing strategies boosted with mathematics. Eva Vilkuma, one of the people behind Swan Lake Strategy, has been a guest on this podcast. We discussed how companies can develop mathematical models to support their decision-making. I learned a lot from that episode and I suggest you listen to that episode right after you finish this one. Together with Swan Lake, you can tap into emerging business opportunities, prepare for the unexpected, and shape the markets to your benefit. Go check out Swan Lake's website and learn how to turn uncertainty into new business and growth. SwanLakeStrategy.com So let's let's talk next about Smartly. So let's just start once again with the basics. What does Smartly do? Smartly started as a company that builds tools for building Facebook ads. And it was something that Krista and Tuomo, two people who had no background in online advertising industry, just saw while building another startup that people are starting to invest a lot more money in Facebook. There's quite a few changes happening, like the news feed and, and kind of ads appearing there. So they saw that there's a big shift in the industry and they just wanted to build something. And nowadays, Smartly is an online advertising automation platform that works with multiple uh, social networks as well as other channels. 
Uh, they even acquired a company focused on Google advertising recently. Uh, they have strong tools around automating cre creatives and kind of automating everything that you want to do with your, your campaigns. Given that it was started by people who didn't have a background in the industry, it was built as a really learning organization that really has to value customers, understand them, build what they want, etc. So it was a really interesting case in uh, building B2B SaaS products and uh, building an organization that's really good at doing that. When, when did you end, enter the company and what was your role at Smartly? I was an investor in Smartly already when they were pretty small, maybe 10 people. And I joined as the VP of engineering as employee number 30. So I had been following the company while I was building Flowduck. And that was the main reason why I wanted to join because I had seen the pool they're getting from their customers and I had seen the team they're assembling. So it, it seemed like this is really starting to click. And when I left Flow, Doc and Rally and I was thinking what to do next, some of my own ideas were kind of going to similar directions as well. So I figured this is something where they already have a really good start and they clearly need help building the product. So I might be able to help with that. And Smartly actually actually grew really rapidly. So can you talk a little about the, the changes within the company as as it grew from a really small of a couple of people to, to hundreds? What what were the kind of the significant shifts in, in how the company was operated? As I said, I was employee number 30. And when I started, the first things I set up were a recruiting process and an onboarding process because we felt that uh, we're going to be growing quite a lot. We felt the pull from the customers. We were just closing some great logos. And at the same time, the whole product was becoming extremely broad. And yet it was only built by uh, one small team of developers. And we felt that to properly support this product, we need to have several teams to, to do that. And so we just started hiring. Uh, and uh, I spent at least half of my time in hiring for the following months and pretty much for the following years too. So yeah. we went from 30 to 60, 60 people in just a few months and then kept going uh, until a few hundred quite rapidly. So it, it was pretty much a defining um, kind of characteristic for the company that every Monday there's more people uh, at the office <laughs> and, and we really had to design everything, everything around that. At the same time, many things were not necessarily really ready for scale. So you can imagine that if we worked a lot with individual customers and kind of built the product uh, in a very reactive way, that kind of easily leads to building a product that's not as well thought out. It's it's kind of, you need to go back and then figure out how to put all of this together and so on. So that really pr presented a huge challenge in terms of bringing in people to a really complex environment that is very dependent on people knowing other people to get work done and knowing the domain and, and knowing the code base and actually being able to execute and and so so that, that that was a really interesting challenge and as we scaled that quite naturally led to led to a bunch of changes like initially we talked a lot about everyone being full stack and kind of being able to do all kinds of things but which is a great thing to do in the early days. And at the same time, if you just hire 
kind of generalists, you are not going to be very good at anything that you do because you're missing all those kind of specialists could, that could really raise the bar and uh, and uh, make you excellent in some areas. So there were many of these kind of smaller shifts that needed to happen in the culture as we grew. It sounds like like uh, you were so focused on the customers that you were fairly reactively implementing whatever came from the customers. And I'm guessing that that results in a in a code base that's not probably as structured as you would want it to be or as thought out as you would want it to be so there's probably a lot of legacy and all kinds of all kinds of distractions so how, how do you feel about that i mean that there's always a balance in in uh how much you should invest in in the infrastructure and the and the kind of making sure that the code is good and simply focusing on the customer needs because also there is the reality that if you build something you spend a lot of effort in making it great but then it eventually you learn that it's the wrong thing you're going to throw it away anyway so what's what's your thinking on this balance yeah balancing the customer requests and moving really fast versus building the platform is that's the fundamental question of building products and there is no right or answer it's a constant balancing act. And I would say that most developers are maybe always optimizing the kind of long-term, just building a great product, kind of building it all together. And most salespeople are optimizing the really, again, the short-term, yeah. let's close this customer and so on. And I feel that when, when I'm talking to different parts of the organization, I'm I'm always kind of ha having an argument with each part of the organization because you always need to push them slightly to the other direction. And yeah. part of it is that you just need to have people who understand the problem really well so that you can make those smart compromises because the the developers really need to understand that, okay, we can do something for this customer and we can do a like a one-week version of this kind of feature that actually also works with these other customers. And you need to have the product managers who are able to move fast so that, okay, well, we already had this thing in mind in our backlogs. And if we really need to do it now, let's just connect with 10 other customers to hear from them, would this kind of a solution work for them? So that you don't have to really delay it more than a few days or a week, but then at least what you're building is directionally correct and it's going to be useful for other customers in the future as well. I feel that Swarmia were finally uh, being in a pretty good position with that balance because everyone in the team is really experienced. Everyone understands the customer quite well. And we built some supporting infrastructure relatively early. Um, so that kind of helps us to find the right balance. Totally agree with this and and it doesn't make it easier. Like you said, that there's, there's also a difference in... in the people who are kind of interested in in the customizations and who are interested in the platform and the fact that for example if a salesperson sells a customization to a customer uh, and the developers implemented the pain of the problems that arise from that customization do not go to the salespeople they go to the developers and this is i think one of also the reasons why this this keeps creating conflict yeah, absolutely. And and it's really difficult to understand if you're not a developer what how the software lifecycle works in practice. Because the thing is that 
if you build this feature, uh, you're going to be maintaining it forever until it's taken out from the product. And it's not possible to foresee all the reasons why we need to touch that fe feature in the future, but it could be anything. Like there could be um, kind of a new version of uh, the programming language rolled out and you have to edit everything to work with the new language version. And, and uh, as a result, you just have to go through a bunch of old code and, and do some changes. And uh, that, that kind of stuff happens all the time. And it's actually a pretty big portion of what what a development team is doing. So at, at least at Smartly, one of the things we did was we tried to educate the whole organization about the different dynamics of software development. So as part of the onboarding, we were explaining how how the product development teams work, what kind of challenges we're facing, uh, like how are we structured, how do we do these different things, so that there would be a little bit more empathy towards the product development, as well as just understanding on what can I expect, why am I not getting this feature built right now for this customer. Yeah, I really like how you talk about it with the term empathy. That it—that's exactly what uh, what it's about. It's it's about understanding the other person and listening to them and and really trying to understand their their role and what their job is, and then trying to relate back to that, uh, trying to relate that back to what we're trying to do together. Exactly, and and uh, it goes the other way around too. So many developers might not realize that. For example, sales, at least in the US, is oftentimes compensated based on how much they are closing new business. And when, when your livelihood is dependent on closing this customer and it's blocked by this one feature request, then the developer mostly sees it as someone from the other end of the organization, like peeing you about this thing that doesn't seem very relevant, like that creates some conflict. And, and it is always useful to try to understand what different people in the organization are doing. Well, let's talk about your current company, Swarmia. So what does Swarmia do? Swarmia is about helping software development organizations continuously improve. So if you think about any other part of the business, we use data to understand how our sales is doing, where the bottlenecks are in the funnel, all of these things. In software development, there is value in creating more transparency, but at the same time, there are so many ways you can go wrong with that. And we tried some Git analytics tools at Smartly, for example, to bring some more visibility to what's going on with the teams and to help them improve. But many of them were actually just about stack ranking engineers based on how many commits per day they are doing, <laughs> which does not give you a very accurate idea of how good of a developer someone is. And developers are rightfully pointing that out if you try to make them <laughs> yeah. use, use a tool like that. So we tried to figure out, is there a way to help the teams in a way that's somehow healthy, that's focusing on these systemic issues? Because the reality is also that when you're growing, Things are slowing down, and it can be pretty difficult for an individual developer to pinpoint where the bottlenecks in your process are, and especially when yeah. stuff gets lost between the teams or you're waiting in a queue to get a review or you're just investing all of your time in just keeping the lights on and fixing some urgent production issues, and that's the reason why 
kind of features are not completed. Can you be a little more specific in what actually like, so what, is it a SaaS product and, and what, what's included in it and what, what, what's kind of the view that I get? Swarmia is indeed a SaaS product. We sell to companies that are typically VC-funded growth companies with a few hundred developers. So companies like Outreach, Blinkist, Vault, Smartly, many others are using this product to help their development teams. We bring visibility to where the teams are spending their time on, what are the biggest bottlenecks, what can we learn from this user story that we just completed, so was there maybe something that turned out to be more difficult than we anticipated, and so on. We connect with GitHub, Jira, Slack, all the tools that the development teams are using, and if the teams identify something that they want to improve, we let them configure these kind of working agreements. So you could say, for example, that we don't want people to work alone on a feature. We want them to always work together with someone so that we are constantly spreading knowledge. And because we're connected to these different tools, we actually know, is that happening? And because we also connected with Slack, we can kind of nudge your team to the right direction when you are not doing what you as a team already agreed to do. Given your past experiences that we already talked about at Flowdoc and Smartly, uh, what are you doing differently this time around? Of course, since we just started from scratch, uh, things are quite different than what they were at Smartly. And I'm not even, I don't even have to worry about many of the same things yet because we're just over two years old. We're now 21 people. So it's, uh, it's, it's a small team and we sometimes talk that we're still playing this in easy mode. So it's still relatively easy. Definitely, there are things that we did from the get-go uh, as a result of kind of learning. And for example, one of the things is just the kind of visibility to, to things. And uh, basically, we set up things like a, like a BI dashboard, like business intelligence tools from already a couple of months in so that we can actually see which teams at our customer are doing what in our product. How do we define, is this customer going to convert? Like what kind of product usage patterns contribute to that? And uh, really all of that and being, being able to drill down to a level that's interesting to us because it, it's really difficult to build a new product if you don't, I mean, you cannot just rely on on the, like feedback you get from customers because in the early days, uh, especially you're dealing with a very limited number of, of people and, and companies and so on. So we really want to understand how are they returning, how, what kind of things they are using in the product and so on. How about you personally? Uh, we've already talked about how experienced you are and how, how many companies you've been involved in and what kind of different roles you've, you've had and so on. So what are some of the personal habits or traits that you found to be especially useful or productive? I feel that my productivity is just going down over the years. I was <laughs> much more uh, able to just focus on cranking out code or emails or whatever in the earlier days. And I feel that my focus is shifting much more on just how do I interact with the rest of the organization and kind of just support them. So I've gotten a lot better in terms of like using these different styles of communication to make sure that people get what they need. And so, for example, 
I'm quite good at sharing whenever I have a discussion that with someone that's really helpful. I just post the message in Slack that I had this conversation and we talked about this and it was good. Or anything else, like if we have a meeting, we're always sharing notes from that meeting with the rest of the team and kind of just realizing that this is important for someone else and then proactively sharing in an asynchronous way is, is a good way to to keep the organization up to date. And then you have to combine these different styles of communication. Like uh, what I really liked to do at Smartly was just kind of, well, walking around the office and, and uh, connecting with people and hearing what, what they're thinking and all these things. And that actually turned out to be really valuable. I actually find that one of the things that, the kind of the good things that came out of COVID and, and going going remote was that, like like you said, uh, it's it's there are a lot of meetings or, or things that happen within the company that would be beneficial for everyone to, to know about. Uh, but it's, it's like, at least we had, at some point, we had this assumption that if someone talked about something at the office, everyone knows about it. And that obviously is not true. <laughs> Almost always that's not true. And and it wasn't, it wasn't shared. But then when everyone was remote, there was no other way of doing it other than like writing something in Slack. And that became a more of a habit where, where you would uh, kind of create a summary, write a summary of something and post it in Slack. We actually, in, in, in Diaz, we actually created this uh, channel called Knowledge Sharing, where the idea is that you only post like a summary of something and there's like a strict adherence to threads that you're only allowed to discuss uh, in threads. And as a result, that one channel became a great source of, of knowledge for that that everyone should know. And creating something like that while everyone was still at the office would have been, I think, for some reason harder because you had this assumption that, okay, we talked about it and most people were sitting here, so they probably know about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you just have to understand that even if people were in that meeting, we might have a different idea of what did we just discuss. And so everything like writing notes together in the meeting, keeping them visible, in a shared document, that kind of things really help people to process what, what we're just deciding. And then if you think about any of the great remote companies who had been doing this before COVID, they focus a lot more on asynchronous communication and all of this, because otherwise what you end up doing is just tripling the number of meetings you used to have, and that that is not healthy or pleasant for anyone. So we need to find these new ways to be a little bit more asynchronous to keep scaling this while being remote. And it's amazing how like if someone for example focuses on writing some a summary of something it's it can convey the message so much better than a 1 hour meeting. Yeah, absolutely. And that is maybe one of the other learnings from Smartly that as we grew it became increasingly difficult for people to drive projects that involved many people from different parts of the organization. And if you just try to have a few meetings about it, you start going in circles, people have bring up the same objections and you're not really moving forward and you kind of just stall. And what you need to do at that point is have someone who's actually taking ownership of that decision and who's going to drive it forward outside of the meetings and then prepare kind of a structure for how we're going to make this complex decision. And, and, and companies use these RFC documents for a request for comments or something like that. And, and uh, for example, I was 
just practicing my development skills at the end of my smartly career and i was building the new kind of development environment infrastructure where developers get to provision like provision like tens of microservices uh with, with one command and so that was a very complex project that involved all teams and so on and and uh i basically just wrote this document where like what's the problem we're trying to solve uh what options are we considering what kind of problems we've identified that we need to fix before we can move forward and then just like other notes and then just running through that with a bunch of different teams and gathering what are the problems we need to solve and then just solving all of those and that way you're able to drive some of these bigger projects forward and it's a really critical thing uh, to learn if you want to be a senior developer to kind of have influence beyond just one team and especially in this more self-organizing world. One thing that you mentioned in the notes that we shared before this talk was that you've kind of lost some of your interest or belief in, in self-organization. Can we talk a little about that? I wouldn't say I lost my belief in self-organization. I'm just trying to find the pragmatic balance in terms of where to self-organize and what kind of support systems and guardrails and constraints organizations need to have to function. And I think if you look at any of the truly self-organizing frameworks, they come with these tools of some sort of committees or whatever groups of people that decide on certain meta topics and so on. So it's usually built somewhere in there. But oftentimes when companies start this journey, they just expect that well, we're just going to leave people on their own and let's see what happens. And that is not what self-organization is about. And then yeah. when companies try to find the balance of what to standardize and what to let to the teams, they tend to focus on a bit odd things. Like I, I see all the time that companies want to standardize uh, like the sprint rhythm of software development teams that every all the sprints need to start exactly on the same Monday and whatever. Like, I do not understand how does that help uh, the organization. You might think that then you can kind of synchronize some backlogs, but the reality is that if it's dependent on some other team completing something, they probably didn't quite complete it in a sprint, and then it wasn't quite ready that Monday, and it was ready the Wednesday, and then like yeah, yeah, trying yeah. to micromanage uh, a huge organization doesn't work, and then then you focus on the wrong things. It's again balancing. Uh, problem yeah. and uh, companies are really struggling with that. Yeah, I, I think there's a shift here also that like we went from traditional, the pendulum was first at, at really traditional management structures and, and really, really strict hierarchies. Then we like at, some, at least some companies went completely overboard with the whole self-organization thing. And now we're coming back to a healthy balance between the two that there's actually things that can be learned from from both sides of the equation. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, to close off, let's talk about some of your dark moments. Uh, what's been especially stressful or detrimental in, in the past years? I think one thing about the dark moments is that you don't necessarily realize you're, you're living them at the moment. And, and that's one of the things that when I've been I've I, I been working pretty hard all my life and working long days and especially during smartly times, as we were growing all the time, oftentimes we don't have all the supporting structures in place. We don't have all the leadership we wanted to have in place. And, and you end up doing a, 
quite a few things yourself and trying to kind of st stay afloat just by kind of doing more. And I had this like geo fencing time tracking app that alerted me when I got 40 hours of work done in a week. And usually it alerted me on Wednesday. So that kind of <laughs> indicated that, okay, well, th this is maybe, maybe too much. After I left, I, I did take a couple of months not doing anything. And that kind of really allowed me to, to reflect a little bit on just on my priorities and I'm trying to control my more balanced approach to life as well uh, in a bit different way now. I was definitely very burnt out uh, several occasions during this kind of startup journey, but not always really seeing it as, as well. Have you found ways of uh, preventing that in the future, of coping or coping with that in the future? Yeah, I, I think you need to evaluate the balance all, all the time uh, with some kind of regular check-ins. I, I maybe discovered this a little bit late that um, since we are running companies in a certain way and we're trying to always see are we balanced, turns out you can also think about life uh, in, in similar <laughs> ways with, with, with very very same tools. So I, I don't have any magic tricks, but, but I do think that uh, just ha spending some time on, on the, that thought and uh, figuring out how you can apply your mind that somehow manages to do this on the business side, how can you apply that? Um, it, it's, it's probably a time well spent. Awesome. Thanks a lot for your time. Thank you.